in a moment of prayer, seeking his blessing upon our worship, shall we pray. Gracious God and most merciful Heavenly Father, we've gathered ourselves and our children together for worship again. We've come to the right place. We've come at the right time. And we beg of thee, Father, prepare now our hearts so that we also may have come in the right spirit. With eager anticipation, we await the opening of thy word. And we pray, Father, that it might please thee to accompany that word with the power of thy spirit. Once again, we pray that thy word may find its way into hearts made fertile and receptive by thee. We have learned from Christ that where two or three are gathered together in his name, there we can expect the very presence of Christ. And it is now thy spirit that we seek to lead us and to sanctify our efforts at worship again this day. We pray, Father, bless us now in this hour of worship. Open the eyes and the ears of our understanding. Accompany thy word by the power of thy spirit so that it may become for us the very bread of life. Open our sin-darkened minds and hearts so that we may be able to hear, to understand, to receive, to believe, to live, and to appropriate what the Spirit has to say to the church again this morning. Hear us, answer us, forgive us. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, the verses 17 through to the end of verse 27. And while you're looking that up, I remind you the last time we were together, we listened to some of the utterances of our Lord Christ from the cross. We've listened to the first two. The last time we were here, we heard him pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we heard him say to one of the criminals, I tell you today you shall be with me in paradise. We want to continue with that series this morning. We want to look this morning with number three and then this afternoon at number four. So I want to read with you John chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 17. So they took Jesus, this is the word of God. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And now follow the words of our text, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, 
the, reaching, or the reading and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Wellaport with me this morning. The scene that we have before us this morning as the drama of Calvary continues to unfold opens up with the words, Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his mother. And scripture identifies Jesus as a man of sorrows. You're all familiar with that, and we understand that, but what is not so usually considered by us is that Mary also was not unacquainted with grief. Try to imagine the emotions that would have coursed in her heart when the angel comes to her and says, Rejoice, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And he tells her that she is with child. And we read that Mary was troubled at this saying. No wonder. The angel Gabriel had come to announce to her the fact of the miraculous conception. And and if we ponder that for just a moment, we will realize that this was no small matter for Mary. Oh, indeed, this miracle brought with it certain honor, but it brought also a very real threat and shadow upon Mary's reputation. She, was, con- she was, conce- was convinced of the miracle by the angel, but, but would her parents, her family, her friends, her fiancé, would they believe her? How would she explain her pregnancy to them? That message of the angel would have brought such a great testing of Mary's faith, and we can only admire her when we observe her great submission to the will of the Lord. Although fully aware that the situation would bring much grief, we hear her in all humility submitting to the will of the Lord when she utters the words, let it be done to me according to thy will. And my dear people of God, if you're familiar with the life of Mary from your Bible, you will know that the divine message of her pregnancy was, was, was just a, a precursor or a forerunner, if you will, of many great sorrows yet to follow for this handmaiden of the Lord. Much sorrow would yet await her as direct result of being the earthly mother of our Lord. Follow with some of her painful history with me as, we, as we're giving it in the biblical record. Imagine the condition of Mary's mother's heart when at the birth of her firstborn son, there was no room in the inn and she had to lay him in a manger in a stable surrounded not by happy family members but by, but by common animals. That was not the way that she or any mother would have envisioned the birth of a child. And then what anguish must have gone through her mother's heart when she learned that it was Herod's purpose to take the life of her child. As human mothers, you know the pain of your heart when your precious child is being taunted and tormented by, by a neighborhood bully or in the classroom. In the, in, that hurts your mother's heart because of your intense love and concern for your child. Imagine then, if you can, what a burden was given to Mary when she had to flee with her child for safety in Egypt because powerful political forces sought to kill him. But now here on Calvary, the epitome of it all. Imagine how her mother's heart must have been torn apart when she sees her son, her own precious child, despised and rejected of men. What grief must have been hers when she saw her child, hated and persecuted by his own people. Who among us can imagine what would have passed through her heart and mind as she stood there at the foot of the cross? She didn't understand she could scarcely take it all in. There she stood, 
in the shadow of the cross, a cross bearing her precious son to whom she had herself had given birth. Oh, indeed, Christ was a man of sorrows, but so too was she a woman of great sorrows. But, but, but as the narrative continues, we will see Jesus hanging on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of man, and then we will hear Jesus reaching out to comfort his mother in her sorrow. I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme, Woman, Behold Your Son. Woman, Behold Your Son. We want to see, first of all, that in these words we will find the fulfillment of the prophecy of Simeon. We then also see that Jesus teaches Mary that she is no longer his natural mother. We will then see that Jesus teaches Mary that she remains his spiritual daughter. And finally, we want to see that Jesus provides for the physical needs of his earthly mother. So first of all, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Simeon, then Jesus teaching Mary that she is no longer his natural mother. Jesus teaches that Mary, that she remains his spiritual daughter, and then Jesus provides for the physical needs of his earthly mother. People have got in order for us to do justice to our text this morning, we need to go back for a moment to the requirements of the Old Testament law. You see, the Mosaic law required that all firstborn male children were to be presented to the Lord in the temple along with an offering of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And the significance of that we want to leave for another time and another sermon, but in that context, we see Joseph and Mary honoring their obligation towards that law, and they went with Jesus to the temple, and you know the story, I'm sure. Something puzzling to them, but something of great significance awaits them there as they approach the temple. It was there as these parents sought to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law that they meet Simeon. Simeon, who according to the scriptures was a devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. Devout then in the context meaning a faithful member of that small remnant who still eagerly expected the promised Messiah. And the Bible tells us that this man, this Simeon, had been told by the Holy Spirit, no less, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now he had eagerly awaited by the temple in Jerusalem, fully expecting that divine revelation to be fulfilled. We're told in the text that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it's important to note that divine influence upon Simeon because of what now transpires in that narrative. You see, we read that Simeon sees Joseph, Mary, and their child. And under the influence of the Spirit of God, he instantly recognizes Jesus as the promised Messiah. We read that Simeon takes the child in his own arms, blessed, or if you will, praise God, and then in the power, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, he prays, (coughs) O Lord, O Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. But then he goes on to prophesy of the Christ. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign which will be spoken against. And so it proved to be true. Men who would agree in nothing else agreed together to hate the Lord. 
He was to be a stone, a stumbling block, and a rock of offense to to many proud and self-righteous Jews who would reject him and perish in their sin and unbelief, but he would also prove himself to be the savior of many who repented and believed. But Simeon continued, now specifically to Mary, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, he turns to the child's mother and he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Both elements of that prophecy were fulfilled here at Golgotha. It was as if Simeon's eyes were able to span 30 years and and, and he was unable to see that scene at Calvary. 30 years before it happened, Simeon saw the cross through the eyes of his faith. He saw the Christ and he saw saw Mary standing by the cross with a sword piercing her heart as she sees the anguish of her precious son. We read that Joseph and Mary marveled at the things spoken by Simeon. What strange words were spoken by him. Could it be that this greatest of all privileges of giving birth to the Savior, to the Messiah, would bring with it the greatest of all sorrows? It seemed unlikely to Mary as she stood there with that blessed child in her arms that day. There was so much she did not understand. Returning to our text, we now read, there stood by the cross of Jesus, Mary, his mother. And throughout all of Jesus' growing years, we hear very little of Mary. But now, during the epitome of Christ's agony, when the world has rejected the son of her womb, we read that Mary, she stands by the cross. We cannot even imagine the picture in our minds. She must have been emotionally paralyzed by the cruel scene, and yet yet she was bound by the chains of love to the dying one on that shameful cross. There she stands by the cross. Try to imagine with me the thoughts and the emotions of her own heart as she now remembers the words of Simeon spoken so many years earlier. A sword will also pierce your own heart. Oh, what a sharp and painful sword was here cutting into Mary's soul. There she stands at the cross. The one who who there suffers the torments of hell on that shameful tree, is her son. It was she who had laid the first sweet kiss on that brow, that brow now crowned with thorns. He was nursed at her breasts. It was Mary that at first guided those little hands as a child, those same gentle hands that were now nailed to that accursed cross. No mother ever suffered as she did at this moment. His disciples had deserted him. His friends had forsaken him. His nation despised him. The church condemned him. And yet his mother stands at the cross, that sword slowly piercing her soul in agony. In all of the four Gospels, we find her standing in silence. Not a word uttered from her mouth is recorded. Apparently, she suffered in unbroken silence. And yet her sorrow was real. It was acute, and it ravaged her very soul. There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. The crowds are jeering. The thief is taunting. The soldiers are callous and indifferent. The Savior is bleeding, dying, and there standing by the cross is his mother. She suppresses her grief. 
She stands there in silence. And then we read in our text, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The first thing that strikes us in the text is the word the word that Jesus uses to address his mother. We would have expected him to call her mother. And we're almost offended that he would address her simply as woman. Are we not offended when children address their parents as my old man or my old woman? In fact, are we not offended when our children call us even by our first names? Oh, modern child psychologists suggest that such a custom may be helpful to establish a closer relationship with our children. We will be in a better position to be friends to our children if we remove that barrier of a title as mother or father, modern gurus tell us. It's an absurd theory, people of God. The end result is to destroy the respect for parents that God requires of children. Oh, indeed, let parents be friends to their children, but let them be parents, let them be mother and father to them, first of all. But the question remains, why would Jesus address her as he did? We understand the authority, obedience structure between parents and children. It's clearly taught us in the scripture, and Jesus would have known that principle. Why then does Jesus here address his mother as woman? Was Jesus being disrespectful? Why then was, oh, oh, we know that can't be true. I, myself, was a little bit disappointed to discover that several of the commentaries in my library argued that in the Eastern culture, women were not held in high esteem and that to address wives and mothers as simply, as mothers to address them as simply a woman was a cultural thing. No, no, to understand the word choice of Jesus in saying to her woman, we need to dig a little deeper. People have got several truths are being taught us here, and the significance may not escape us. Of course, Jesus meant no disrespect. After all, to show disrespect to parents is a violation of God's perfect law. The fifth commandment demands parental respect from children, and Christ himself repeatedly reaffirmed the scriptural norms laid down for the necessary respect required from children towards parents. It would be impossible that Christ here abandons his own commandments. So then the question remains, why, why, why? Why did Christ address her or his own mother as woman? What was then the purpose of Jesus' address, addressing his mother in this way? Well, first of all, Jesus was pointing to a basic spirit, a scriptural or a spiritual truth, namely that there is a higher order of relationships than that of flesh and blood. Follow with me for a moment. Flesh and blood relationships are only earthly and they are temporal. Only spiritual relationships can be heavenly and eternal. And Christ here teaches Mary that their earthly relationship as son and mother would terminate here at the cross. The tie of flesh and blood between them would be no more. The same is true of all earthly relationships. There will be, they will be broken. They will be severed. They are terminated at the death of one of the parties in the relationship. They will not, they cannot exist beyond the grave. A husband and a wife relationship will not continue beyond the grave. 
And my dear people, God, I know that we often like to think that we will know each other personally in heaven, but I think Jesus here tells us that that will not be so. Christ here teaches Mary and us along with her that all earthly relationships must cease at the grave. But, 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 what was not, but that was not to cause Mary to despair for a higher bond, an unbreakable and an eternal bond yet lay between Christ and Mary. Jesus here teaches her that the temporal earthly bond will be severed, but at the same time he reminds her and us with her of the eternal and spiritual bond that would, that would unite them forever. When understood from that perspective, then it becomes obvious that Mary meant no disrespect, no, or that Christ meant no disrespect. No, in fact, Jesus here would comfort his earthly mother with greater spiritual truths. He would have her know that although their earthly relationship was drawing to a close here at the cross, their spiritual relationship would have no end. Beyond the grave, Mary would no longer know Jesus as her son, but she would still know him as her savior. The same is true for us who follow her into eternal glory. Earthly ties between family and friends will end at the grave. But, but, but our spiritual relationship to Christ continues. We see Jesus teaching Mary a similar truth earlier during his, his earthly ministry. We remember that Jesus had on one other occasion addressed her in the same way. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, we saw Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana. You remember the story. The wine had run out. And Mary hurries to Jesus to seek his help. But, but when she tried, Jesus replies with an almost curt, Woman, woman, what do I have to do with you? And note that once again, Jesus does not say mother, but woman. And some careful thought here would give us another reason why Jesus again here at the cross addresses her as woman. You see, Mary was not unacquainted with the uniqueness of her child. The very fact that Mary would run to Jesus with the wine problem at Cana <laughs> implies that she was well aware of Jesus' supernatural power. And yet, understandably, Mary, at least to some extent, views her son the same as all mothers do, expecting them, her to obey, to obey the wishes of the parent. Jesus, you have the power. We need more wine in order to avoid this scandal. Woman, what do I have to do with you? And Jesus meant no respect to his mother when he addressed her as woman. No, rather Jesus seizes that opportunity to remind her of her proper station in life. Jesus reminds her that she is indeed his earthly mother, and as such she had authority over him. But her authority was limited to her earthly relationship to him. But in this instant, Mary sought assistance as son of God. She wanted to use her earthly authority over him to press him into performing, to performing a divine miracle for earthly benefit. And therefore, Jesus admonishes her, rebukes her, and reminds her of her station, her position in their relationship. You see, Mary had indeed been highly favored among, not above, but highly favored among women in being chosen as the one whom, to whom the Son of God would assume his human nature. But, 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 but she was to know that she was no more than an instrument in the hand of God to work out his plan of salvation of mankind. 
the blessing that Mary received in being chosen of God to give birth to the Son of God did not bring with it the privilege that Mary could dictate over Christ as the Son of God. Mary, although highly favored by God, was given absolutely no other privileges or authority other than being the vessel chosen by God to give birth to the Son of God. And people of God, the error made there in Cana by Mary was that she assumed that her earthly relationship to Christ gave her special status in the spiritual realm. And it is at precisely this point that the Church of Rome has made their tragic error in introducing their theology of Mariology. Rome makes the same assumption implied by Mary at the wedding of Cana. Mary assumes for herself that special status and Christ rebuked her for her sin. Woman, what have I to do with you? And Rome apparently fails to hear that rebuke of Christ and Rome calls Mary the mother of God rather than the woman from whom Christ has taken his human flesh and blood. But a second and even more serious error and assumption is made by Rome on which they base all of their idolatrous theology. Roman Catholicism tragically errs in presuming that Mary, as the mother of God, can prevail upon her son on behalf of the saints and consequently members of the Church of Rome are taught that they can pray to Mary, asking Mary to speak to her son on their behalf. People of God, that practices nothing less than what our catechism calls it, an accursed idolatry, and we should never apologize for identifying it as such. So no, Jesus meant no respect in calling Mary woman rather than mother. And we too recognize that Mary was indeed favored among women. However, in order to remind Mary and all of the world of the distinction between Christ as the Son of God and Christ as the Son of Man, Jesus says to her, woman, what have I to do with you? Again here at the cross, Jesus displays a divine insight into the only abiding relationship between mothers and sons and any other human relationship is that spiritual relationship we identified earlier. But now capture this with me. After Jesus had made the distinction clear to Mary, Jesus still confirmed the Old Testament commandment that children are to honor parents. Jesus did so all of his life. And although his years of obedience to Mary and Joseph were now coming to a close, he's still even here. While hanging on that cross, he still sought to provide for and to honor his mother. Jesus looks down. He sees, he sees the mother whom he has loved. And he sees the disciple of love. And he says, woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. And then we read from that moment on, the disciple took her into his own house. We remember in this context that Jesus was suffering. He was suffering the very wrath of God as that was being poured out upon him. 
And among all of his suffering, perhaps more correctly, adding to his suffering was the fact that all of the apostles had abandoned him and fled for their lives. They'd run away. It was bad enough that his own people, the Jews, should despise and reject him. But far worse was it that the 11 who had walked and talked with him would also desert him in his hour of crisis. We would have thought that their faith in him would be sufficient to wait with him, but obviously it was not so. Matthew tells us that they all forsook him. Our Lord had warned them of their approaching cowardice. Jesus had told them, as we read in Matthew 26, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Oh, all of the apostles committed themselves to standing with him. Come what may, we read that Peter said, Lord, though I die with you, I will not forsake you. You and, and that, and thus said, all of the disciples, we read. My dear people of God, allow me a brief interjection here. One of the favorite hymns of the church has been the well-known, the old rugged cross. You all know what you're aware of it. it. However, it has been omitted from the hymn books of most faithful, thoughtful, and discerning churches. And the reason for that omission is to be found here in the text. We listen to all of the disciples, but especially Peter, Lord, though I die with you, I will remain true. And that's also precisely the confession made in the last stanza of that hymn. The author captured the words of Peter when he pens the words, to that old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach I will gladly bear. Nothing of this kind of sentiment is found in scripture. Peter, who boasted that he would never forsake his Lord, had to experience a tragic denial before he understood how utterly undependable he actually was apart from the sustaining power of God. Oh, away then with our own boastful assertions of our own faithfulness. Let our petitions rather be a pleading for God's grace, enabling us to be faithful. Christ was offended at Peter's self-confidence and rebuked him. Oh, I know your intentions, Peter. I know you think that you will stay with me. I know you think your faith is strong, but, and you know the end of that story. And the words of Christ again proved to be true. They all deserted him. That was also what Christ had told them would happen. All of you will be made to stumble or be offended by me and will leave me. The Greek word there used can also be meant, can also be translated to mean scandalized. They were afraid. They were ashamed to be in his company in these circumstances. They were afraid and it was no longer safe to remain with him. He gave himself up and they fled for their lives. To that cross I will always be true. Oh, hardly. How much better for us to sing in the hour of trial, Jesus, plead for me, lest by base denial I depart from thee, as the disciples did. And yet, as we continue to read the Gospels, we marvel that, that praise be to God, the cowardice of the apostles was only temporary. We read in Matthew 28 that later they, they returned and sought him again at the mountain of Galilee, but we read that one of the disciples of the eleven, one did seek him before his triumph over the grave at Easter. In fact, in shame, he returned and sought him while yet at the cross. And people got, even if the Bible would not have identified this apostle, we would have known who it was, wouldn't we? There is no hint in scripture that any of the other eleven were present, but those who know and love the scriptures, they would have expected John to be there. 
We've come to expect that of the Apostle John, the Apostle of love. There he was, John. Oh, he too had run from the Savior and he ran away in fear of his own skin, but now here he was. He had returned to the Savior's side and there he receives a blessed commission. Son, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. Jesus commits his mother into the hands of the disciple of love as an, as an act and expression of his love and respect for her. A blessed commission for John. Christ said, behold your mother. He's saying, let her be unto you as your own mother. He is saying, John, now let your love for me be demonstrated in your love and your tender care for her who was my earthly mother. People of God, here we are permitted to witness a specific example of the self-sacrificing character of the redemptive love of God. Consider with me the scene there at Golgotha. In a few moments, Christ will cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'll hear about that this afternoon, Lord willing. And, and, and he was testifying there to the hellish agony he would undergo as the wrath of God is poured out upon him. But, but, but before he permits himself to think of his own condition, his concern is yet for the ones he loves. Before he permits the excruciating hellish agony to envelop him, he first makes provision for the one he loves. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The Lord Jesus was dying as substitute for you and for me. He was at this very moment engaged in the most colossal undertaking that this earth would ever witness. He was at the point of offering satisfaction to the outraged justice of God. He was about to do the work for which all ages had waited and hoped. And yet, in the face of all of that hellish fury that, in, that entailed for him, he does not overlook his responsibilities toward his earthly ties and relationships. He makes it at this very moment provision for her who was his earthly mother. My dear precious people of God, there's an important lesson here for us, especially in our age. In Christ's demonstration of love for his earthly mother, he would teach us of our tremendous obligation towards our mothers, fathers, children, or anyone else who has an earthly, physical relationship with us. No duty, no work, no matter how important the mission, no matter how great the need, no work, no activity can ever excuse us from exercising the obligation of nature in nurturing and caring for those who have earthly claims upon us, first of all. Those relationships have claim upon us, first of all, before God. Men who spend most of their time at meetings, even religious meetings, even if it be church and kingdom work, when it is done to the neglect of their own families who have the first claim upon their time, bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Men who spend their lives preaching and teaching and who have no time to teach their own children need to study and practice the principle here exemplified by Christ on the cross. In the same way, mothers who choose to work outside of the home in order to achieve their wants rather than their needs. And I say this very cautiously because in today's economy, it's becoming more and more needful for, for two incomes to provide for the family. But when mothers go outside of the home to provide for their wants 
rather than their needs, leaving their small children to be raised and nurtured by strangers in daycare, preschool, or by babysitters. They have not understood what Christ here teaches about our first obligation towards our family. Capture with me here Jesus Christ on the cross, blending the most human love and affection with his divine glory. There he was, as son of God, making atonement for the sins of the world, grappling with the powers of hell and darkness that would consume him, and yet in the midst of all of it, he still demonstrates his human tenderness towards his mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that very hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This care of his mother was characteristic of all of Jesus' life and conduct as it should be characteristic of our lives. People of God, his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful he was in all that he did. Wonderful he was in every relationship he sustained. Wonderful he was in his person. Wonderful he was in his work. Wonderful he was in his life. And wonderful he was in his death. How wonderful that we have been able to look into his wonderful face this morning. Oh, let each of us love, wonder, and adore our wonderful Savior. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. My dear precious saints of God gathered with me here in Wellaport, children of God, I speak the words of Christ after him, and in his name I say to you, behold your God and your Father. Shall we pray? Oh, Jesus, we adore thee upon the cross, our King. We bow our hearts before thee, thy gracious name we sing. That name hath brought salvation, that name in life our stay, our peace, our consolation, when life shall fade away. Lord, grant to us remission, life through thy death restore. Yea, grant us the fruition of life forevermore. Amen.